This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by the new podcast, Anomaly. Vanessa, one of my favorite YouTube holes to go down is like role play fantasy tabletop multiplayer games where I don't really know any of the people playing, but I love watching them have an adventure. Well, Casper, then you would love Anomaly. It's a role-playing meditation podcast that takes you into a world of magic and fantasy. You'll be invited to imagine yourself in scenarios such as learning to cast a tranquility spell or exploring a land once vanquished by a dragon, but all connected by a shared mythology. I am genuinely going to download this right now. This sounds amazing. (laughs) This podcast combines traits of a great dungeon master and those of a talented meditation guide, weaving tales of fantasy that stretch the imagination while you learn to center yourself, offer forgiveness, find confidence, and relieve stress. This is available now on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. It's Anomaly, spelled with an I-E at the end and not a Y. Go to S-E-E-K-A-N-O-M-A. L-I-E dot com. That's SeekAnomaly.com to find out more. Book 5, Chapter 18 Umbridge has been reading your mail, Harry. There's no other explanation. You think Umbridge attacked Hedwig, he said, outraged? I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Jackson Bird. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And that was recorded by Emily Carr at Camp Jackson, where you and I got to hang out just last summer. I know. That was so much fun. It was. It was also fun, like, all these ways that we got to involve people in the different podcasts. Yep. Yep. Our only announcement, Jackson, is announcing our bonus conversation Patreon perk, which is you and I are going to be talking about what would be in our rooms of requirement. Yes. And I, you know, I'm guessing puppies will come up for me. I I can't promise, but. I mean, I got to say, as a Taurus, like imagining what physical objects will be in my cozy dream room. I'm I'm going to have a lot of ideas. I'm going to have a lot of thoughts for this. (laughs) Aren't you? I'm already having feelings. I'm like, Mm. lavender scented candles? No. It's really like a great dream space I'm in. You got to pick out the right scent, but we will get into all of that. We will, and you can hear that brilliant, no doubt, and inspiring conversation at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. Jackson, you are going to be telling us a story on the theme of possibility today. What story do you have? Yeah, so I want to take us back in my life to the early days of the pandemic. And people who know me will know that I have inexplicably lived in one of the world's largest cities for 13 years, despite not really being a city person. <laughs> and I had really wanted to move before the pandemic, but I didn't. So like pandemic, I was, I was stuck in the city and I really felt stuck. And one of the things that I ended up doing was daydreaming like really, really intensely about what if I won the lottery or what if I just had like all of this money like what what would I do with it and I mean the the biggest thing was like buy a house out in the country and so I spent 
way too much time like on weekends and stuff just like looking through Zillow at million dollar houses with you know tens hundreds of acres and getting very detailed about like here's how I would set up each room here's how I would plan out the moving process on moving day I would organize the boxes like this and I would do this Um, oh my god I should also clarify that it was months into this before I ever thought I could buy a lotto ticket Like, I had never in my life bought a lottery (laughs) ticket, but I was thinking I was going to win the lottery somehow. Sure. (laughs) You don't know. I was also thinking about what I would sort of stop doing in my life. So, like, if I, let's say, won the lottery tomorrow, are there jobs or commitments or things that I would no longer do because I didn't need the money? And I'm in a very privileged position where a lot of the times I would think about that and be like, no, I would still want to keep doing this. I would still want to keep doing that because I'm a freelancer who's very lucky to do things that I love for the most part. But in certain periods of the last few years, there were certain things that I had where I realized, no, I would stop doing that as soon as I could. So even though I sometimes spent way too much time and energy to the point where I think it almost got unhealthy dreaming about like this life with more money than I could ever imagine and and what I would do, there were a few times where it actually became a useful exercise. Because on the one hand, Mm. it helped me think about, okay, what really matters in my life? Like, what what are the commitments that really bring me joy? And what are the ones that are really bringing me down that maybe I can try to take steps to decrease in my life or get away from? But it also opened my mind. There were so many things that I put in this category of like, oh, only if I'm a billionaire, that were like, I would rearrange my kitchen and this one shelf would really make a difference. And it's like, buddy, you could thrift (laughs) that shelf and make that change today. It wasn't like an outrageous dream. And so it sort of helped me like open my mind to the possibilities that were already available in my life that for some reason I just like wasn't seeing yet. And so I, I do actually think it's kind of a valuable exercise sometimes to think like, okay, if you had no barriers in, in whatever way, what might you change? And then sometimes it's sad to realize maybe you'll you'll never be able to achieve those. But there are some little things that you might be like, oh, wait, I could just do that. And so that is my possibility example. Part of what I love about this story, Jackson, is that it's a call for imagination, right? Mm-hmm. It's like those moments of like, if you could do anything, if you could start over, right? And I, I do. I think that those those reflections are really generative, you know? imagining over and over again what a beautiful life would be. It's depressing that money is the key to it a lot of the time. it really is. But I do think we can imagine ourselves to a better world. And so taking the time and space to imagine that feels important to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now that I think about it, like I've been a part of like strategic planning retreats where we've literally been led through like, okay, if money was not an object, if all of these other barriers weren't weren't an object, like what would you do? What would you want to do for or with this organization? So I I guess my silly daydream is actually backed up by real practices. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that funny? I will say that I found the etymology of this a little disappointing. Hmm. Possibility comes from the old French, and it means a possible thing or substance. But it also means that which may take place. And so I do think it's interesting that we think of it both as an event and as a thing, right? Like Hmm. there's a future invention that might exist and be possible. But there are also future states that could be possible. And it feels like your story is about those two combined, of like there could be resources that would allow a future state. 
Mm. And then you separating those two things of like, oh, I can have that state even if I don't have the resources. Yeah. And that's what thrift shops are for. <laughs> right, right. And stooping. Yeah, that is interesting. I'm still sitting with this et etymological definition. I feel like I haven't quite digested it yet. Can you repeat part of the the sort of binary of this? Yeah, so a possible thing or substance, mm -hmm. right? So like an object, so right, like a COVID vaccine. Okay, yeah. So that is a thing that could exist. A COVID vaccine was a possibility. We made it a reality. And then that which may take place or come into being would be like a vaccinated world. Mm. And they aren't necessarily the same thing. Yeah. Right? But we do use possibility for both of them. And I feel like your story is about saying, when can we separate those two? When can we say, it doesn't have to be a vaccinated world. We can be in a safe world. Or, no, it has to be a vaccinated world in order to be a safe world. And so they need to be connected, right? Like, I feel like that's your story is about exactly separating those two things. What do I need the millions of dollars in order to have? And what can, is actually just about a state? And I can make that happen without the millions of dollars. Yeah. And I, I think that is actually a really important distinction that I, I bet we will get into as we get into this chapter, because there's so many instances as like a teaser <laughs> where I was reading this chapter, thinking about possibility and just reflecting on how often possibility is tied to like privilege and access to resources. Yeah. So I love that we're setting it up with this sort of distinction. Yeah. Okay, well, let's see what's possible for me to remember in this 30-second recap, if you don't mind counting me in. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Three, two, one. So the Quidditch team gets reinstated, probably because McGonagall went all the way to Dumbledore and went above Umbridge's head. And everyone is so excited, and they have practice. And then it turns out that Fred and George have, like, boils on their butts, and it's raining really badly, and it's horrible. And they're going to have their first DA meeting. And Dobby, who's actually been taking all of the hats from Hermione, is able to tell them about the room of requirement. And that's when they name the DA, and they elect Harry as the person in charge, and they start all their practices. And we already see the potential in Neville. He's already getting better in Cho. It's Cho is there. I ran out of time. Cho is there. Cho is there. <laughs> Cho is there. Cho is being there. Being adorable. It's true. So she can't help it. <laughs> okay, Jackson, are you ready to clean up that mess I left for you? I'm, I'm going to try to fill in some gaps. We'll see how it goes. Okay, on your mark, get set, go. All right, so they're in charms class and they're talking about how last night uh, Umbridge maybe caught Sirius in the fire. And they're like, did she actually know that it was him? And they're kind of freaking out about what to do. And now they definitely can't talk to Sirius again. So they're feeling very stuck about that. Uh, and then the Quidditch team is back. Yeah, and they have uh, they have practice in very bad rain. Uh, and yeah, Fred and George have been testing stuff and they have boils. And that sounds very, very uncomfortable. Uh, and then there's going to be another Quidditch practice, but it's canceled because it just keeps raining. This whole chapter, it's raining a heck of a lot. Um, oh, and Harry, I think, had a... Oh, no, I didn't get into anything. Because I remembered an important <laughs> thing that neither of us talked about, which is Harry's scar is hurting again. And yes. he's, like, realizing he can feel Voldemort's emotions. And that seems yes. very important to mention. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's book five. Harry's scar hurts. He's feeling emotions. That feels like it could be in, like, almost any chapter. That does just... That's... You just described book five. Harry's exactly. scar hurts it's and he's feeling emotions. <laughs> yeah. So this time they're Voldemort's emotions, whatever. <laughs> so Jackson, the 
thing that I feel like we have to talk about is the room of requirement Mm -hmm. because it could easily be called the room of possibilities. Yeah. Right? Like, it is the room where you can get anything you want or need. Like, you don't even need to need it, right? You just have to want it. Yeah, I think so. Well, you know what? I went, when I was reading the chapter again, the way Dobby described it this time, there was something that stood out to me. It was almost like he described it more as needing it. Yeah. So Dobby describes the room of requirements of, he's heard tell of it from other house elves. It's known by us as the come and go room or else as the room of requirement. It's a room that a person can only enter when they have a real need of it. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. But when it appears, it is always equipped for the seeker's needs. For the seeker's needs. So it does emphasize needs. Yes. However, that is Dobby's perspective. There's also like, it is such a a mysterious room that I think people make their own interpretation of it as well when they discover it. I just think, you know, the examples that were given of the room of requirement are really interesting, right? Like Dumbledore needs a bathroom. Mm -hmm. That's a need. But Fred and George, like, need to escape Felch. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the question becomes, if they needed to escape McGonagall, would the Room of Requirement show up? Does mm. it have a judgment on, like, what the actual needs are of the person? Or is it what they just, like, really want to do? And so it appears. Yeah, I tend to think that it is sort of like if the person themselves feels like it is a need that is what is interpreted because one thing that is interesting to me is like a lot of the times when we see the room of the requirement especially for the da like it is a tripped out room there's all kinds of resources and like cozy places to sit but when fred and george needed it it was a broom cupboard And, and i think that's because that's what they were imagining that they needed was a closet like that to just go hide in they weren't imagining that we need this big room they were just like oh we we need somewhere to hide and so it sort of turned into what they had in their head yeah one thing that i find interesting is the distinction you made between them being caught by filch and them being caught by mcgonagall which i heard and you could correct me if i'm wrong but i heard from you in that that like they're sort of in more danger, there's a bigger consequence being caught by Filch. Totally. Where if they're caught by McGonagall, sure, they're still going to get punished. But, it, like, she's a little bit more understanding of them. Like, they're still going to kind of be safe around her. Where Filch is maybe more of a loose cannon. You don't know what's going to happen. They have a greater right. fear. So, I don't know. I'm also just sort of trying to to tease that out in terms of the the need versus want and the the possibility factor of the room of requirement. I guess we find out more about this in the next book where you can need two different things, right? Harry really, really deeply desires to catch Draco, but Draco feels as though he needs the room to Mm -hmm. be private. And, and like, Harry can't get into the room. I just, I guess I find it interesting that the room doesn't seem to have a moral agenda. That it's like, hey, if you need it, I'll provide it. Mm -hmm. I think that there's something about just saying, if you feel as though you need something, it's my job to meet your needs. And it's, like, not my job to assess whether or not you need it and just sort of like to believe people that they need what they're asking for. Yeah. It's making me think a lot about like net neutrality and the way that we classify the internet and yeah. like is it a communications device in the same way that like telephones are that you know we can use a telephone for 
anything on an individual level, but with the internet where things can get complicated is it is also a community resource. And so like, if you want to have a good community online, you need proper moderation and there do need to maybe be some values agreed upon and, and stuff like that. And so with the room of requirement, when it's just like one person or one community using it at once, that lack of sort of like moral value judgment from the room of requirement is maybe arguably fine. But yeah, then when you get into like dynamics of like Harry and Draco's conflicting needs or wants with it, it gets a lot right. more hairy. Yeah. And when we want to say to someone, yes, this is a possibility that I will help you have. And when you're saying to someone, no, that's an unreasonable possibility. Mm. Right. And where that comes from, is it because it's a scarce resource? Is it because you think what they want to be possible shouldn't be possible? I don't know. It just feels like this is how we decide a lot of the world, right? It's making me think a little bit about like, okay, all the examples that we've said so far and a lot of the ones that we see in the books, I think you could very well make a pretty clear argument of it being like a need. This person has has a need for this and it's very helpful. But I'm trying to imagine like, I don't know, let's say some random kid at Hogwarts hears about it and is like, wow, that'd be really cool to make like, you know, the coolest room ever. And, there, you know, it's going to be a bunch of like records and a cool sound system and a lava lamp. They just think it would be cool, right? And so I think right. on the one hand, you could see that and be like, that's not a need. That's just a want. So will the room of requirement fulfill that or not? Maybe it wouldn't. But I then start thinking about, well, maybe that kid who thinks that is would be really cool is also like having trouble like being around so many people in the common room all the time and needs some alone time. Right. Like, like, so it makes me start thinking about like access needs and accommodations and stuff like that, where you can hear something right. at first and maybe think, how could that be a need? We don't need that to be possible. And then like you get some of the larger context and it's like, oh no, that now makes sense why that would actually be a need. Right. It is interesting because as someone who grew up outside of Christmas culture. Mm -hmm. Like, I understand why it feels like a need right around the darkest day of the year to, like, light up a tree and bring joy to children in the middle of winter, mm -hmm. right? But it always looked like excess to me from the outside and mm -hmm. is, like, kids getting their wish lists and, like, you know, whatever, right? Like, not being necessary. But as I get older, I'm like, no, festivals in the middle of the winter really make a lot of sense to me, which makes me think, right, that even if we don't need everything that we want to be possible, what we do need is the feeling of possibility. Mm, yes, I think that is so important. And I think it is a really tough thing sometimes to feel that possibility. Right. Absolutely. I love John Green's definition of hope, which is like hope is the belief that people can change. Mm. And I feel like belief in possibility is the belief that like circumstances can change, that it's possible for you to get a million dollars so you can, you know, buy a house or it's possible that there's affordable housing. Like Right. That, yeah. It's possible that there's other ways to get to what, what you think is is the dream. Yeah. Right. I also think with, with that John Green quote, that can also apply to you of like the belief that you can change. Because yes. I think that's important too, is like not trying to be prescriptive of like, don't just tell yeah. people change your mindset. But again, at, for myself, sometimes that is really helpful to be like, why do I think this way? Why am I approaching this this way? Let me open my mind a little bit to this. Right. And open my mind to possibility. When I was reading this chapter, the character that really illustrated this for me was Dobby. And it, it wasn't 
super much from like what we saw of Dobby in this chapter in particular, but just being reminded of Dobby's story. And, you know, Dobby was given that one opportunity when Harry sort of accidentally freed him. But since then, Dobby's perspective on the world has been one of just absolutely abundant possibility and just like dreaming and achieving all of these things that he was never told he could do that, you know, no one like him ever does. And I see that as it's a very complicated thought given the whole house elves thing, but honing in on Dobby in particular and his story, I think is a really beautiful example of possibility. Yeah. And that it is reliant on a material change, right? Mm -hmm. Dobby actually didn't believe really in possibility before. He had hope for Harry in Harry, Mm -hmm. but he was, he truly believed that he was stuck as the Malfoy's house elf and being granted freedom, right? His his life has materially changed. And so the world that literally had no possibility in it now is full of possibilities for him. Mm-hmm. And just like how important that material change is in order to create a world of possibilities for Dobby. Yeah. And I do think it's important like to think as we talk about, you know, how much is your sort of perspective and mindset and how much is the the material change in the context of it like winky was also given freedom but she was like let go in in a very like traumatic way and so that's different so like she is not going to have the same like perspective about it as dobby and that like she is not one where we could just be like oh you just need to like change your thinking which is what dobby says to her many times it's like no her situation was completely different and it wasn't like this kind of gift. It was more more of a hardship. Absolutely. No, she was kicked out of her home yeah. where she was happy. We can judge the dynamic that was there, but she was happy. Yeah, and she was evicted, forcibly evicted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Dobby in particular in this chapter is collecting all of Hermione's knitting projects. I just love it so much. I love the excess of it, right? <laughs> like I, as a maximalist where mm-hmm. I'm like, no, but more is more. And especially when it comes to decoration and fashion, right? Like, let's be honest. I got back from my brother's wedding yesterday and was I in a sparkle dress with like sparkle hair? Yes, I was. Nice. So I love that Dobby is like hats on hats, right? Like <laughs> symbols of freedom on top of symbols of freedom. Oh, right? I love he that. He just wants to sh- shower himself in this new thing that he is allowed to do. Yeah. The symbols of freedom on top of symbols of freedom just for the first time made me think of this uh, through a trans lens. <laughs> Shocking that I would think of something through a trans lens, but made me think about like when you are first like exploring your gender or especially like maybe buying clothing of a different gender expression than you ever have before. And like sometimes like we can view that as a little like cringe here and there because you haven't figured out your style yet and maybe it doesn't like look great and or you're like older and you're trying to wear stuff that you wish you could have wore as a as a kid and it's like oh this doesn't look my age but there is such a beauty and joy in that as well of like look this person like finally feeling free to dress how they want and express themselves how they want so i actually really love the way you just described all of these, you know, wearing seven hats on top of each other as symbols of freedom on, on symbols of freedom and just the absolute joy of that. Yeah. And like, you're never too old to wear anything. I just like yeah. so deeply believe like fashion is a place where we can just enjoy ourselves, whatever that enjoyment feels like, right? Whether it be comfort or glam or, you know, minimalism, whatever it is. But 
I don't know, dress for yourself. And that's what Davi is doing. It is funny that Hermione, without talking to anyone, has decided yes. that hats are going to be this world of possibility for house elves. Mm-hmm. And of course it's not, right? Like, Yeah. I think this is one reason why I've, even though it's a funny visual, I have never actually like seen this moment in, in as a moment of joy because all I hear yeah. is Dobby saying, oh, I have to clean the common room all by myself now because no one right. else will come here because Hermione's doing this thing that she thinks is good. But she never talked to the community she's trying to help. She never asked them what they actually right. need. She just assumed and right. it's actually making life harder for all of them. I know. I know. I was raised by someone who really believes that and raised us that if somebody asks you for money, if you can give it, you give it without conditions, right? Like, you don't give it as a loan, you don't ask for it back, and you definitely don't look at how they're going to spend the money, right? So if someone asks for money to help pay their rent, and then they spend a lot of money on a meal, it's not up to you to be like, hey, that's not what I lent you that money for. That's not what I gave you that money for. Mm-hmm. That people know what they need, and what they need might be different than you know, what you think that they should need. And I think that, like, that is the mistake that Hermione is making here, right? She's like, no, no, you need freedom so much that I will trick you into to doing it, right? Yeah. I think my father really, like, sees things like restrictions on EBT cards, right, as, like, deeply paternalistic. And it's funny the ways that we choose to criticize these policies, right? Because, like, diapers aren't covered on EBT cards, and we're like, are diapers not a need? Right. But also, cigarettes aren't covered. And I think what my father would say is, like, if someone feels like they need cigarettes, like, right? Like, that's not up to us to tell them whether or not they need cigarettes. Yeah. To me, this goes back to our room of requirement discussion of just, like, you you don't really know why a need could be someone's need, but it absolutely can be. And even if it, like, looks more like a want to you, like, you don't know everything they're going through. You don't know their whole, like, background and perspective on on why that thing might have, like, jumped up to the level of need for them. Right. And so, yeah, I think what Hermione wants is a world full of possibility for the house elves. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard if that's what you want for someone to believe that, that it's not what they want. Mm-hmm. And I, again, feel for her because she's 15 and I feel much less for systems of oppression that try to tell people what they, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. should feel is possible for them and not. But I understand that, right? It's why parents really feel as though their kids absolutely should go to college. They want them to have all the possibilities in front of them, even if their kid is like, no, that's not the right place for me, right? And like, We just really have to be careful about even wanting possibilities for other people. Right. It's the two different sort of definitions of possibility. Again, there's the world that you sort of want and then the like thing that you think is what will get you there. And Hermione didn't ask what the house elves need to get to that world, which depending on the definition of this, you know, equitable world, they might even have a different idea of what that world is that they want. Hi listeners, this is Naomi Westwater. You may know me from my previous classes at Not Sorry. I'm dropping into your feed today to let you know about an upcoming course I'm running starting March 17th called Creating Daily Ritual, Tarot as a Sacred Practice. In this course, I will teach you about the history and meaning of the cards in the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck and model how they can be used as a tool for self-reflection and creativity. Through lecture, discussion with your classmates and solo journaling, 
I will aim to help you develop your individual connection with tarot, this ancient tool for meaning making. If you're looking to elevate your daily ritual, please join me starting Sunday evening, March 17th for six weeks of habit building, learning and community. Head to notsorryworks.com for more information and be sure to check out our sliding scale pricing and scholarships listed on the website. That's notsorryworks.com. I mean, the last thing that I feel like we have to talk about is that what Umbridge is trying to do is create a world without any possibility. Yes. Right? Like, there was a requirement for corruption just to get a Quidditch team off the ground. And what's interesting to me is how solidarity is how people recreate a sense of possibility, Mm, right? Yeah. Angelina went to McGonagall, who went to Dumbledore, and, like, things feel possible again. And Cho brings Marietta, and, like, going to the DA feels possible even in Cho's extreme grief, Mm -hmm. right? That when things don't feel possible, it literally, it can just make such a difference to have a buddy or just, like, one person on your side, Yeah, someone who maybe has access to other resources or someone who just has a slightly different perspective that can then open your mind to possibility or just like, kind of like Marietta, just be there to hold your hand. Just be there with you. Right. And like really the big example of this is Harry and Mm -hmm. Hermione, right? Mm. Like the world needs Harry to be teaching this class in order to keep this a world where Umbridge's demise is possible. The DA does need to be formed, but Harry never would have done it without Hermione. No. Right? Like in order to live into all, all that is possible within us, we just like need, we need friends, Jackson. Yeah. We need, we need friends. We need community. We need, yeah, we need other people and, and feeling that in our lives yeah, because I mean, this this book especially is just a lot about feeling a lack of possibility of all the ways that Umbridge is just like cutting off communication channels, putting all these restrictions on things. You know, there's a couple of times in this book where Harry, Ron, and Hermione are like, well, we need to do this, but we can't do this because Umbridge, like said, like is watching this and is doing this. And so like when you feel that run down, well, not just feel, when you are that run down and have all of these systems working against you, it can be so, so hard to feel that possibility at all. So I love some of the examples you brought up, even like the Quidditch example of like, again, is Quidditch a need? Well, I think for a lot of these kids to have an outlet and a morale booster and like feel that possibility again, like here was something that Umbridge took away and they were able to work together to bring it back. Like that is a a huge boon to feeling that sense of possibility again. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we know that fascist regimes intentionally try to do, right, is withhold a sense of possibility because you become downtrodden and stop fighting, right? When yeah, yeah. When you just like give in, that is when it's easiest for these regimes to take over. So, yeah, it's a strategy, right? Like the the status quo is a strategy, and Umbridge is trying to make this the new status quo of just removing all sense of possibility from the school. Yeah, you know, we sort of talked around it, but now I'm really envisioning this first meeting of Dumbledore's army as just being a moment of like explosive possibility for all the kids in there who were feeling very run down by everything that Umbridge is doing and suddenly like they're feeling 
there is a possible way out, but also like feeling possibility in themselves as they were all like getting better and learning these skills that they themselves can use. Uh, Wow. I, I love the end of this chapter with with the DA. Like it's it's a really beautiful scene to me. I mean, I love that this is the chapter where we start to see Neville's excellence. Mm-hmm. I know it's only going to be in book six when he gets his own wand that like is a wand fit for him that he will really start to excel at magic. And I know that it's also made light of in this chapter, right? He's effectively able to disarm Harry, but it's only because Harry isn't paying attention. But also like you need that little boost of confidence to then ever get to the next point. Exactly. And so it just makes sense to me that it's like without a teacher's harsh gaze, it's without any Slytherins Mm, in the room, right? Like it's amongst friends that Neville can see this possibility within himself for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so I think, right, again, going back to our etymology, which, you know, I said bad things about, but ended up being really helpful, right? Like Neville was able to see this possibility within himself so that the new wand can make all the difference. Mm -hmm. I do think we need both of those things, right? Like McGonagall says it in this book too, just a few chapters ago, right? Like all, all you need to do is you know, believe in yourself a little more. What you're lacking is confidence. And again, it turns out he is lacking something material, but he needs both. Yeah. Yeah. You need both to to get it to work. Yeah. No, I love this moment so much with Neville. Like that was kind of my my big moment of joy in the chapter, but also part of it, like like I sort of was rereading it and Neville does expel the arms correctly and I kind of like fist punched the air. I was like, yes. But then like reading sort of before and after everything around that moment is Harry just really stepping into this natural ability as a teacher. Like, he's going around to everyone else, helping them out. Even how he immediately was like, oh, Neville, you're going to partner with me. Like, I don't know where any of this came from with Harry. Like, he's just immediately knows what to do as a teacher. And I just absolutely loved seeing that talent emerge from him in a way that I don't think I've picked up on before when I've read it. And I don't know, that was just so beautiful to me, seeing that in Harry of like, Sure, he gets all these accolades, all this attention and fame for all of these things, but this is something that is like a natural skill of his that I don't think is ever really celebrated or or noticed. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really beautiful, him going around the room and like helping people quietly while also having them, you know, work by themselves, right? And mm-hmm. it's it's funny, just in this chapter, we see Flitwick go around the room in order to help students who are practicing with their silencing charm. But he's not as pedagogically sound in the way. He's like, well, let's see you do it, right? He, like, asks Ron to perform, whereas Harry is there and is, like, gently changing people's strategy and is, like, encouraging them. And so it's interesting that potentially the best pedagogy that we see at Hogwarts comes from this child. Wow. So, Jackson, we are going to do pardes, the Jewish practice, and I have picked a sentence for us. Okay. It is. Harry shook his head and covered his eyes with his hands, pressing down upon them with his palms. And so the first step of pardes is pshat, which is when we talk about the intended meaning of the sentence, but we'll also do a little context. So this is when Harry's scar has just hurt. And he's, like, processing that he can understand what is going on with Voldemort. 
And so Ron has just asked him, how do you know that that is what's going on with Voldemort? Right. And they're, this is when they're in the locker room after Quidditch practice. Everyone else has left. Right. And Harry. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And so literally in the sentence, right, it's very physical. This mm-hmm. shaking his head, covering his eyes, pressing down upon them, right? Like you're getting a sense, like this is the behavior of someone with a migraine. That's exactly right? what I was going to say. Yeah. Like you, yeah. you can feel this pain if you've ever had a headache right there where you're just like, I got to like somehow putting your hands, the pressure on your head is going to help somehow. Right. It's also him trying to concentrate, right? Like yes. really trying to like block everything out so that mm-hmm. he can focus. But it feels like it's, yeah, it's both at the same time. Okay, so step two is when we pick a word and sort of see where else it comes up in the novels. And so I will read the sentence to you and pick a word that sparkles up at you. So Harry shook his head and covered his eyes with his hands, pressing down upon them with his palms. Hmm. I think I want to go with palms. Ooh. Because okay. we, ha- we had a lot of body parts in that, but palm is much more specific than like hands or eyes. Yeah. So what comes to mind immediately for me is Trelawney. Me and, too. Like, palm reading. Yeah. Okay. But where else do we have palms? I feel like probably in cases either of maybe like learning some type of wand movement or like in dueling, I almost feel like there's maybe an instance where we do see like Voldemort holding up his palm or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Later in this book, the prophecy is going to be something that Harry is constantly t- clutching in his palm. Mm. And it's like his, I think of basketball players as people with like really good palm strength. Right. And Harry, it makes sense, right? Like from Quidditch, has palm strength. Got to catch that snitch. You got to catch that snitch. And I just read the end of book five aloud with my kids and we were just like laughing about how much happens to Harry and he manages to hold on to the prophecy. (laughs) We're like, really? You still haven't dropped or broken this prophecy? Really? But maybe it's his incredible palm strength. Yeah, I think that is probably it is like, you know, him being a a seeker is almost like that that has led us to be able to maybe believe that he could hold that. I think this is interesting that Probably the main cases that palms come up in the stories are divination stuff, which is like mm-hmm. an open palm trying to see the future and then holding things, like right. just grasping clutched things palms. in your hand. Yeah, yeah, like a closed, clutched palm. And so right. that, the that is... The resurrection stone mm-hmm. in book seven, the snitch. Yeah, yeah, specifically like holding very important things. yeah. Yeah. And and it's also interesting that the first example you brought up of like a palm holding something was the prophecy when the other like before the other thing we had said was divination. Yes. Both oh, attached to so Trelawney. Yeah. Yes. A physical manifestation of a thing. Oh, I love that. Him holding the prophecy in his palm is is a form of palmistry. <laughs> that's, that's, like, that's his future in his hands. <laughs> oh my god. That's fascinating. So step three is drosh, where this is where we talk about what lesson we would pull from this sentence. And so I'll read it one more time. Harry shook his head and covered his eyes with his hands, pressing down upon them with his palms. So I'm not at the point in my thought process where this is a lesson yet. But one thing that stood out to me when you read it this time is, you know, we talked about how this sentence, his actions are are really showing us like the pain of what he was feeling. They're they're illustrating 
This is a very painful situation. But here, you know, shaking his head, blocking things out to me was like also emotionally not wanting this to happen, trying to like shake yeah. it off just so badly. Like he knows what this means anytime his scar hurts and it's bad news. And so he's like physically trying to shake this off from being a thing that is happening to him. I love that. The like desire for this to not be the case. Mm-hmm. I think I would talk about, I this feels cliche, but it just also feels so true. I think I would talk about the the need for like quiet, sometimes Mm. right like he's he is so desperate for like some form of like privacy and reflection that he's just like closing his eyes right Mm. like closing himself off and you know it's not that he doesn't want ron in the room with him it's that he needs to really concentrate in order to like have a thought and fixate on what's happening and i'm just someone i mean this is really me preaching to myself like i'm never not listening to something like i listen to podcasts while i'm in the shower I, like, never go on a walk without either music or a podcast playing. And I, like, really, our bodies just, like, need quiet. Yeah. And whenever I do eke out some quiet from myself, I'm like, whoa, that's actually important. And so I think I would, yeah, talk about that and, like, why why we're afraid to be alone, right? Like, what it is what it is that we're trying to drown out by always having noise with us. Yeah, I mean, I, I strongly uh, agree with that. And I, I also listen to music and podcasts in the shower and anytime I'm like walking and leave the house. And with Harry in this moment, what I'm thinking of is it, it's related to that, but I think there's the noise of his life. I mean, he he's at a boarding school. There's so many other kids yeah. around. He's got so much on his plate as a student, but he could spend all day, every day, as we see in the seventh book, like trying to figure out this situation with Voldemort. And, you know, with Harry, I think it's maybe less like a, oh, I should find quiet uh, or like quiet for reflection, but more like he just needs the space in like his 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 time commitments and everything to be able to think about this and process what is going on, which I, I, I also find very relatable in my life. Like it's not so much that I like want to be alone or want to be in quiet sometimes, but it's like I just need a minute to try to process what's happening and think about what I'm doing. Yeah, and that there are good and bad places for that, right? Mm -hmm. Like Harry had all summer, quote unquote, to reflect. True. But that's not the vibe of the Dursley house, right? Like even though he's left alone, it is not in a productive or supported way. Mm. So last episode, and sewed means secret. And so the idea is that it's possible that a secret that we didn't think of when we first read the sentence is sort of emerged by talking about it. So... Here is a sentence. Harry shook his head and covered his eyes with his hands, pressing down upon them with his palms. It occurred to me that it's like one kind of prayer that I know of, which is when you're welcoming the Sabbath in Judaism, you light the candles and then close your eyes. And Sabbath is often personified as a bride that's like coming in as a gift to like give you quiet in a weekend. And that It's often traditionally, right, women who do all the preparation for Shabbat, right, who like make sure all the food is cooked ahead of time, make sure that everything is ready so that you can have this radical rest. And it is also traditionally women who cover their eyes 
in order to welcome in Shabbat. And so it's just interesting that like it's an intentional moment in Judaism for like a moment of quiet to reflect as you transition from one moment to the other. You know, Friday afternoons in Orthodox Jewish households are incredibly chaotic because you're not just doing your normal activities, but you're also preparing to not be able to do any activities for Mm -hmm. 24 hours. And that you need this moment of like supreme quiet before you like step over the threshold into the Sabbath and like cover your eyes, I think is is really beautiful. It's something that I really love about sort of like Sabbath traditions. Yeah, it's taking that time to sort of pause from all the chaos and now be like, okay, like take some deep breaths and now we're going to slow down. We're going to light a candle and start a new space. Well, and in this, I mean, we just had how more chaotic could you get than Quidditch practice in a huge downpour (laughs) of rain? Right. And then this like burst into your head. And so he is trying to take that that moment of closing his eyes and slowing down. I was also thinking a little bit about, you know, we talked about he's trying to block everything out and like figure out what he's feeling. But something about him like pressing into his eyes really illustrated for me him getting deeper into what's happening in his head and really going like, you know, fully cerebral, fully inside or like trying to figure out what he's hearing from Voldemort. Yeah, so some, something about that, which I, I, feel, I think is connected to the, the sort of pause and, and the prayerful like body language. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's a transition. He's always tried to push Voldemort away. And this is him actually mm. trying to go in and understand. Yes. Right, it is a transition. Yeah, and so I, I love that even more now that we're seeing this as like, almost more like prayerful or, or like spiritual in, in a way because this is a big moment. It's the first yeah, time that he's is. he's cognitively aware these are Voldemort's emotions. He he then realizes in retrospect when he felt that before, but this is the first time he's figuring it out. And as we know, this is going to become a very major like plot point. Yeah. Wow. Oof. I had not thought of that. Yeah. Wow. Thanks, Pardes. And thanks, Jason. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Vanessa. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This week's voicemail is from Serena. Hi, Harry Potter Sacred Text team. My name is Serena, and I am calling in with a blessing. Um, I was listening to Matt and Vanessa talk about Sirius and Molly Weasley and who would be a better guardian for him or what, what kind of guardian Harry needs, maybe. And... It made me think about my own experience. Um, My mom died when I was 15 years old and she was sick for a long time. And so she was able to put a lot of things in order before she died. And um, she was a queer single parent and she made the choice for me to live with 
um, a heterosexual couple who had children after she died because she was worried that her family would take me away um, to live with them if I lived with any of our queer chosen family. Um, And it was really hard. Um, I know now as an adult that um, the laws in the state and county where I lived actually would have protected me had she chosen um, a different set of guardians for me. Um, But the folks that I lived with were very loving, but also had um, a lot of their own dysfunction and pain. And um, when I became an adult, the mom of the family ended up writing me a letter um, talking about how part of the reason that went so badly was that she mistook me for my mom, who had been her great friend. Um, And I don't know that I would trade the experience if I could because it made me the person who I am today, but all of your conversation made me want to bless, actually, uh, Dumbledore um, and my mom and all adults who have to make these impossible choices or maybe even the wrong choices for the right reasons. Um, they're doing their best with the information that they have. And Dumbledore had to put Harry with the Dursleys, and it wasn't a choice um, I think that his his parents would have made. And I think if Dumbledore had had more information, maybe there's this alternate timeline where Harry gets to go live with the Weasleys. Um, and so thank you, and thank you for your work that you do. Bye. Serena, thank you for your beautiful voicemail. I love the forgiveness in your voicemail. This just like profound assumption of good intentions. I think it's so generous of you to know that you were impacted negatively by something and to still see that the intentions were all good. I think that is not something that you owe the world or anyone. And I'm just incredibly inspired by that response. And so I want to thank you because, yeah, I think I can use a little more of that in my life, some forgiveness for things I resent. And so thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. It was really beautiful. And I agree with Vanessa, a good reminder and modeling of forgiveness in a deep way. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. David Brandstrom, 37, a sweetheart, husband, son, brother, and co-worker. Sonia Bose, who is 89, a grandma and where our listener got their sense of humor. Caitlin Burns, who is 39, who is hilarious, sensitive, and a thoughtful adventurer. And Martine Bryan, who was 97, the best Nana and a big Hagrid lover. May their memories be a blessing.
Jackson, it's now time where we get to offer blessings to characters. Who would you like to bless this week? I would like to bless Cho Chang Mm. because I loved seeing a little bit of her in this chapter. These books are from Harry's perspective. And so a lot of what we see of Cho Chang in these books is like the object of Harry's desire. But she is a full person who is going through a lot as a 16-year-old. And that is so, so hard. And it doesn't sound like from the little bits we get that like she's getting maybe the support she needs at home. Like her parents are maybe not realizing the kind of grief that she's going through. She's not getting it at Hogwarts. And so I just wanted to send a blessing to Cho, who is doing great despite not quite getting the support she needs. Amen. So I would like to bless Ginny for her team moment with Cho. So they're coming up with a name for this organization. And Cho comes up with the great idea of calling it the Defense Association. And then she's like, but for code reasons, we can call it the DA. And her team member, Ginny, turns it into the best name ever, Dumbledore's Army. Because she's like, no, let's just call them what they're afraid we are. (laughs) And it's very confrontational and very humorous. And I love that it's a yes and moment between two brilliant young women. It's true. Next week, we'll be reading book five, chapter 19, The Lion and the Serpent, through the theme of heartbreak with Matt Pop. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. We have some amazing classes coming up early in the new year. Find out about those by going to notsorryworks.com. And also, we have some amazing new iTunes reviews that we want to thank the writers of ESM888, The Noah, Brit1135, Rational Passion, Kisabella007, The Debola, Burr Pommy, Jillian Bell, and Evangeline. Thank you so much for leaving reviews. It really helps new listeners find us, and we're really grateful. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. We want to thank Serena for your great voicemail this week. Laura Glass, Ariana Nettleman. Julia Argy, Margaret H. Wilson, Nikki Zoltkin, Hannah Rehat, Courtney Brown, Casper Kyle, Matt Potts, Natalie Folkert, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. Oh my god! Sure can! Yeah, probably a good idea. Remember nice how just a minute Adrian. ago I was like, we've been doing this for eight years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm like, what does this podcast sound like?